Progressive Rugby League. G'day folks, John O'Duncan here. Look, we've heard the call loud and clear. More book club episodes. I'm walking down the street. People are yelling, Jono, what's your reading? Jono, chuck us another book club ep. All right, street people. Allow us to manifest your wishes into a commanding ruck position for a quick play the ball. What I'm trying to say is, please find, herewith, another progressive rugby league book club installment for your oral pleasure. Are we clear? Okay. Well, today we're talking Paradise Estate by Max Easton. This is a sequel to Max's first novel, the Miles Franklin-nominated The Magpie Wing, featured on Pearl Book Club in 2021. That book chronicled the coming of age of three southwestern Sydney adolescents as they navigated the short physical but large cultural distances between the various pockets of our city as you travel slightly and shakily northeast towards the fabled inner west. Paradise Estate finds us in the geographical grey area of Hurlston Park, in a share house of characters at varying stages of piecing together and or picking apart their lives. There's the familiar brood of Helen Coleman from the Magpie Wing. Then there's the zine maker Sonny, activist Nathan, and among others, part-time rugby league player Rocco, trying to make a late run to be part of the Italian team at the Rugby League World Cup. Forza! The composition of the share house comes as much from a roughly aligned worldview as it does from the reality of Sydney's brutal housing market, where, for a lot of people, you find what you can and just try and make it work. And that's what these guys do, with, it must be said, mixed results. It's another brilliant read, and for the rugby league literary eye, it once again throws up some alluring but fundamental questions about the game. Like, what does rugby league stand for in 2023? Who does it represent? Who plays it? And what on earth are the Saluzzo Roosters? It's a big thrill to have the author of Paradise Estate, Max Easton, back on the show for another stint in the PRL Book Club guest chair. Max, welcome back to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Feels good to be a returning customer, Joe. Thanks for having me back. Uh, It's really good to have you on once again. I hope you know I'm genuine when I'm telling you that I absolutely love the book and I think it's even better than the first. So uh, very big kudos and congratulations, sir. No second season blues for you. First of all, Max, The Magpie <laughs> Wing uh, was your, your first book, obviously, and was obviously received very well. Uh, as I mentioned, nominated for Australia's most prestigious literary prize. Was there any trepidation about doing a sequel, or was this the best way to continue to try tackle all the incongruencies of the city we grew up in and call our home? Yeah, it was a little bit of trepidation. I'm only in that. Like, I felt like I wanted to write it, and um, the story kind of wasn't done, or at least maybe the approach that I had wasn't done yet for me internally, but I was a bit worried that no one would want it. Um, And there's not a lot of literary sequels out there either, so it's kind of, you know, when you sort of observe that, and it's like, oh, there must be accepted wisdom here. (laughs) (laughs) So um, when I met with the publisher, Giramondo, to talk about doing another book, and I mentioned the idea of doing a sequel, and they were curious about it. I was like, okay, that's good. That's, that feels like permission from the higher-ups to yeah. <laughs> to have a go. And even then, they were kind of like, you know, if it doesn't work, you just, in the later edits, you change the names around and you change their backgrounds around and that'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. So there was a little bit of trepidation, but yeah, it definitely felt like 
drawing a line through would be an interesting way to explore or keep exploring Sydney and yeah, sort of play with the echoes, like echoing the first book's mm. ideas and themes and yeah, things like rugby league, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it shows a different side to the city because the characters are a bit older and the characters are experiencing things that slightly older characters experience, like housing crises and, and such. Yeah, yeah, and definitely, um, yeah, because that book ends about nine months, I think, before this book timeline starts, mm. more or less. And it was kind of this interesting situation to come at the back of that book and be like, oh, yeah, all these characters are kind of in their mid-30s now. Mm. I was like looking around because my partner and I were also like, we're pretty happy in our rental, but you kind of had a look and then saw the rent and went, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was a point where it's like, if they have to rent, like we might have to share house again. Yeah. And that was a real driver of the book. It's like, what would it be like to share house again? Because, you know, most of my friends live in share houses. Yeah. In their mid 30s. And it's mm. kind of, the accepted wisdom is that we should be, should be homeowners by now. <laughs> Should have a job. I'm still the job I work at. It's the same wage I was getting paid when I was 20. Yeah. <laughs> so something's not working, and that was sort of yeah the, the narrative driver. I think yeah, yeah. I guess the the kind of economic reality makes young older than it used to be. I guess like mm. in your 30s and perhaps younger than people from previous generations would have been in their 30s, where they would have had a house and probably five kids and uh, whatever it was, you know, times were different, obviously, but the economic reality makes it even starker. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Now, Max, just like in the Magpie Wing, rugby league plays a supporting role in Paradise Estate, uh, like a good fallback after a line break. It's not a, a rugby league book per se, but I think you could say it's perhaps part of the fabric of the story. Now, I feel like this is a bit of a dumb question, but I also think it's an important one. Why did you want Rugby League part of this story? You made it part of the Magpie Wing, uh, but Rugby League, you know, as a thread from that book, had essentially come to an end. So why did you want to include another Rugby League thread in this story? Yeah, I felt like... So the first book was really interesting, was like, but through no effort of... No intentional effort of, like, my own or, or the publisher's part was the book really sold as a sports novel. Mm. But it did really seem to come across as, like, Rugby League was the big part of that book yeah and when I read it back over it to sort of prepare for this one it was like it's sort of it's interesting because it sits in the background and obviously it opens with rugby league which I think is why it sort of feels more yeah more rugby league book but I think it was actually more league talk and presence in this one in, in a sense mm. because that character is of Rocco is um yeah he's a part-time rugby league player and he's 32 30, 33 34 something like that I can't mm. remember but he's sort of I thought it would be really interesting to hone in on that part of your life where it's like, you know, you're going to, you're about to become too old for the thing that you do. Yeah. Which is, you know, very mid thirties thing. You start to feel your body. Yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, when you're watching like, uh, NRL on the weekend, you're like, wow, Cody Walker's 35. Yeah. But Cody Walker's my age. He looks like 53. <laughs> <laughs> He's so hard and from like, from playing this full time sport, like, everyone yeah. looks so much older. Yeah. And they're, you know, almost ready to retire soon. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to explore that from a part-time sense and the way that that rugby league playing character is trying to fit in with the share house of other people of a similar age in this sort of, yeah, I can't remember how you described Holston Park before, but it was really... Grey area. 
Yeah, grey area. So it's this suburb that's kind of, it is and it isn't in rugby league heartland. Mm. So yeah, I, I saw it. Also, I just love rugby league and I really wanted to keep writing and talking and thinking about it. But yeah. yeah, I thought that was really, really rich source of narrative tension and a way to, yeah, look at the city like you mentioned. Yeah. The way I saw it, and it kind of came to me weeks after finishing the book and maybe I was retrofitting, but obviously Paradise Estate is in varying ways about class struggle, you know, the struggle of the, the new working class where certain kinds of work don't guarantee a living wage and an economy totally stacked against younger people without external financial, you know, parental support. And of course, rugby league is a sport born of class struggle. So that makes a world of sense. And I love the way you use rugby league in the story. You, you obviously introduce it through the character of Rocco, who, may I say, as a an Italian-Australian, Australian-Italian, <laughs> is absolutely nailed. Uh, so well done. But we meet Rocco after a stint at the Saluzzo Roosters, a fledgling and ultimately doomed rugby league club in northwestern Italy. Why the Saluzzo Roosters, Max? Curious. It came out of leading into the World Cup, but before it got postponed, um, I was like thinking and reading a lot about so a lot of like fledgling rugby league states. Mm. And um, yeah, like you and I are both part of the Australian-Italian diaspora. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was also something around lockdown like I started learning Italian again so I was a bit more interested in yeah trying to think about that sort of third generation migration in, in a sense mm. and trying to pair up like my love of rugby league with with that background of mine mm. yeah and one of the major you know can you sit in there on google maps and you're kind of like looking around the map you're thinking about like different rugby league competitions and the struggle to get like a you know a domestic Italian competition going you know, you know, very relatively strong rugby union nation. Even though even unions are fledgling sport there. Yeah. I just remember at some point thinking, like, maybe all the efforts should just be to try to get a club in the French Summer League. Yeah. That turned out that someone did <laughs> not that long ago, yeah. um, and they were called the Salutzer Roosters, and they were a rugby rugby union club. I can't remember the timeline exactly, in the mid-2010s, hmm. who just for a few couple of brief years um, switched over the league and entered the team in the French competition, or hmm. one of the French competitions. And then, yeah, this character kind of started coming out of that, and uh, I thought it'd be interesting to like kind of think about this, like, I have a real interest in senior rugby league players who are kind of getting missed by... Or being skipped or skipped over by like young hotshots, yeah. powerful player managers. Mm-hmm. The classic example is um, Zach Docker Clay, North Sydney captain, brought him to a grand final. Great player, like only made his debut last year, sort of thing. Mm. So there's like players like that. They just pop up for a couple of NRL games and do a great job, and they just disappear because they're not sort of not of the mold that a club kind of wants. Yeah. So yeah, I was like thinking of players like that, players at the end of the line of their career. And, like, what do you do when you know your NRL career is over? And for someone like Rocco, it's sort of like, oh, this club in the north, northwest of Italy mm. is flipping. They're flipping the league, and I want to be a part of history because there's so much promise in that. It's like, this could be the resurgence of Italian rugby league. Yeah. Yeah, so that's I really wanted to focus in on that club and him yeah. coming over there to have a stint. And was it easy to do research into the Saluzzo Roosters? Like, what kind of research did you do to ultimately integrate it into the novel or was it fairly 
straightforward, you know, with the story that you just mentioned? It could have been easier if I had a bit more courage because through my work, I work in the office at the West Magpies Rugby League Club mm. and my boss there's um, involved with the Italian Rugby League. So he, you know, I spoke to him about it and he could have put me in touch with the coach of the Switzer Roosters from that time. Oh, yeah. And it just, I couldn't quite formulate the questions I needed to know. Yeah. And then I went over to Italy for a few weeks on holiday last year. Mm. And I ended up in Turin and the plan was to go down to Slutstone. I was like, even if I don't meet the guy, I just want to like go to their home ground and have a look. Yeah. But it's about, you know, an hour and a half by bus and the buses didn't run very often. <laughs> and my Italian's not very good. Yeah. And the day I was planning to go, I just kind of froze up. Yeah. And I couldn't make the, <clears throat> I couldn't do the trip. Yeah. But then, yeah, so... Yeah, and I guess the other part is, that, like, I wrote this novel in 18 months, so the timeline's went... <laughs> I had to yeah. go write all this other stuff, and I, like, lost track of that kind of research. Yeah. But leading into that, I'd done whatever's available on the internet, and most of it was really just a few people talking about it on a rugby league forum. Yeah, right. You know, like, archived message board threads that were, you know, long dead. Yeah. So, and they, you know, like, big international rugby league heads talking about the details yeah. of this so experiment. Yeah, right. Uh, I really just based most of it on that. And I liked the fact that I had the distance from the story in that way, like this secondhand story, mm. because I feel like, um, yeah, you can feel that distance that that character of Rocco has mm. from the dream of the Slitzer Roosters too, because he can't quite, he doesn't really describe anything in any detail. It's just kind of this generalization. Yeah. Yeah. And that was enough for him. Yeah, for sure. Um, Max, as I said in the intro, while not a rugby league book, the rugby league literary eye sees things that maybe shouldn't or perhaps that aren't even there. But uh, whichever way, the book got me thinking about some fundamental questions about the game in 2023 that I'm curious for your thoughts on. Now, we're not far on from witnessing one of the most astonishing NRL grand finals between Penrith and Brisbane. Amazing game. But it's not just the on-field action. It's the the world-class spectacle. You know, rugby league is enormous business in Australia and as I reflect on that I also reflect on a line from the book where Sonny makes a point and I quote that rugby league is probably the highest profile socialist victory in the country behind like the weekend now Max what the hell is rugby league in 2023 because there's this unavoidable contradiction you know the game that started as a workers rights issue became a social movement of sorts but to breathe in the modern world it kind of has to play within the modern world's rules. So I'm curious, how does rugby league compute for you in 2023? You've got an elite big money competition on one hand that's going to Vegas and, a, and the heroic but hapless Saluzzo Roosters on the other. And what does rugby league stand for and who does it represent in the modern day? Yeah, it's a really good question. And there's a reason there's some like very good researchers like um, Anthony Bruxton he had on last time and mm. Tony Collins like constantly turning these kinds of things over and like I would say that Sonny's quite deluded but um, <laughs> but yeah that contradiction is a real part of the book and like something that's within myself too and it kind of comes out in these really weird moments mm. because you do have like rugby league or the NRL sorry kind of still carries this kind of underdog mentality along with it and the mm. way that it engages with the rest of the sporting landscape mm. so like uh, you, you are pretty much the biggest sport in the country 
well, very, very close to being the biggest sport in the country in a profit sense. Mm. But um, you're constantly like playing into the underdog role, which is more historical. Mm. Yeah, as, to, as for what it stands for and who it represents, like that historical link to the working class is is still so strong, and, and that's something that is in the book in parts. It's sort of there are members of the house who come from non rugby league backgrounds, mm. and members of the house who come from rugby league backgrounds and it divides them it's mm. like a really clear dividing line mm. and that's the sort of thing that i think we spoke about it last time on the podcast or at least we've spoken about it elsewhere is sort of that when you move around the city and you can feel that kind of us and them yeah <laughs> when you when you walk into an afl pub and the you know the afl's playing the pub to put oh. the afl on the big screen but the nrl's just kind of like oh, and then non is on the little screen in the TAB room or something. <laughs> it's just like they look, ah! <laughs> the rage of that drive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's weird and it's a contradiction and whichever angle that you look at, you look at it, you find a contradiction within your own, own way of trying to explain it. Yeah. Um, but I think the classic example was the different people's responses to the RLPA strike this year. Yes which was really eye-opening for me, because to me it was a no-brainer. RLPA did a pretty good job of explaining the reasons where it was for mm. the like the little nitty-gritty parts at the end of the bargaining agreement, mm. which was about players like Rocco. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, like I sort of had some involvement with Ron Massey Cup teams over the past couple of years and seeing you know, it's pretty low rate of pay and lots of, yeah, like dangled carrots. Like, there's not... The infrastructure there to support players that rugby league promised at its birth is um it's kind of surged the wrong way around it's very top-ended yeah right so yeah yeah i think it's in to me it's in a very confused state on the one hand it does represent big money but also represents something for working class people to gather around mm. and every little bit and every little part of the game is sort of yeah, the edges are being sanded off. Yeah. But the on-field product is the best it's ever been. That grand final was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree on the confusion part. I feel like rugby league in Australia specifically because of the success it has become in this country compared to elsewhere is a bit like mm. the suburban working class kid with blue collar parents who just wanted their kids to go to uni because they didn't have that kind of chance. Then the kid grows up, goes to uni, gets a white collar job, and moves into a form of middle-class comfort. And although they don't feel the comfort because it's a rat race and their mates are making bigger bucks and the more they earn, the more they spend, and so the margins are the same, but the stakes are higher, all the same, they know they're doing okay, mainly thanks to their parents and dumb luck of being in a country at a certain point in history that made life easier for people like them. And with a decent dose of self-awareness, because they were raised right, they wonder how uh, they should act as a working-class kid now with a middle-class life i feel like there's a bit of that in rugby league in australia trying to find that balance of being true to the working class ethos when materially they're in middle-class comfort that that is one of the smartest summaries of of our generation and that rugby league story that i've ever heard yeah, thank you for that. All right, I there agree. you go. No worries. I agree. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> no worries. Well, <laughs> Max. End the interview. <laughs> <laughs> you solved rugby league. <laughs> hey, Max, the uh, the character of Rocco in the book uh, also got me thinking about who 
is playing rugby league in 2023. Now, an avowed socialist, from what I can tell, who plays rugby league, that seems like a throwback to the first half of the 20th century to me. So the the Rocco character really piqued my interest. Um, You know, as an observer, I've always seen most modern-day rugby league players as an extension of the aspirational tradie class, you know, kind of sporting sole traders trying to build their own little nest egg from their playing exploits. But Rocco's not like that. Can you tell us about the formation of the Rocco character? Why did you build him like you did? Because I really wanted to kind of look at Rocco as... Because I think, like, another big thing, this may be more off the page and on the page, is that, like, Rocco's not... I don't think Rocco's really telling his workmates, he works as a scaffolder, but I don't think he's telling his workmates or his teammates that, you know, has, he's an anarchist or a communist, you know, he's yeah. not really, they're things that he keeps from them mm-hmm. very much. And but so much of his difference between maybe his other playing cohort is that he, it was Bulldogs Junior growing up, playing in some, like, like a hot juniors team coming through, mm. and he fell by the wayside, wasn't picked up. Mm. Didn't quite make it through those like jersey flag squats mm. or, or the national youth championship, I guess, for his vintage. And then had some involvement with the Italian rugby league and, and toured with them. Mm. And then stayed over in Italy for a bit. Mm. And as he settles into Turin and tries to play with Silizzo, he kind of discovers late in life uh, punk music. Mm. And punk music in Italy is really tied to anarchism and um, squats, like occupied social centres, occupied venues, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, There's political agitation. So he's kind of picked up a different kind of education then come back to Australia in a place where a lot of these terms are verboten. You know, like I'm somewhere between an anarchist and a communist and I don't tell my work colleagues that because they freak. (laughs) So for Rocco, to have that understanding or that history to him and to maybe feel a little bit alienated by it is... Yeah, that was really important to me for that character mm. to really kind of explore that sort of like, what do you tell people and what don't you tell people and who are you at your core, what do you believe in at your core and how are you behaving mm. in the real world around other people. And yeah, it's sort of interesting, like there are some players in the NRL who's, who kind of, you know, like ha- have these, I'd say more of kind of like a centre-left position, but they start especially around the strikes and stuff, they started talking about workers' rights Mm. in a way that they don't really talk so much out in the open. Mm. You know, it's a real sport, like all professional sport, but it's where it's like, oh, give a, you know, give this player who's sort of like hot and cold, give him a one-year contract. (laughs) So every year he has to play for his contract and he'll play better. Mm. You give a player a six-year contract, they're like David Nuffloom is a good example. He's playing... It's the same level he's always played. Mm. It's like ever since they gave him a six-year contract or seven, whatever, however long it was, he's been useless. They should have given him one-year contracts. <laughs> they should have given him extreme instability to motivate him. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so, a consensus, yeah. 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 Whereas you have like, you know, like like strong players you care about, the cohort, like um, Christian Walsh is, a good, Walsh is a good example. He's very firm about the idea of the role that players play in the game. Mm. But, um, yeah, I guess I'm sidetracking now. But I think those are the reasons why I just kind of wanted to paint Rocco in that light mm. and kind of set him against and alongside the other people in the house and his sort of, like, side life. Mm. 
Yeah, no, that's. I think that's why I found the the character of Rocco so compelling. Because yeah, you're setting him against the other people in the house, but also in my mind, setting him against other rugby league players, and you know, and maybe even aligning him with rugby league players from a, a distant past. Uh, and it got me thinking. I guess uh, I guess it's related to my question before: What is rugby league in 2023? It it it's an interesting mix because there's that emancipatory potential of it. You know, taking kids from underprivileged backgrounds and rewarding rewarding them with cash even if it's in one year contract increments then there's the uh the element of affirmation in that like it affirms that it's okay to be from the wrong side of the tracks and you know in fact it can be part of your part of town even if it doesn't have the bells and whistles of other parts of town and then there's the solidarity element you know you mentioned the players association example there you know trying to get a decent wage for the lower tier players and you know to keep the women's wages continuing to grow at the same time as as i said i think that the cash involved just the the mere size of the rugby league economy does in my mind feed that kind of soul trader kind of vibe that i sense you know where players are like here's something i can build for myself and my family it's uh yeah it's a curious mix and yeah like i said it's it's the reason why i think i i love the rocco character so much but maybe at, on the other side of things i'm projecting onto rugby league players what I'm observing elsewhere in society because I definitely see as a, a trend in younger men, I guess our age and younger, towards a kind of like libertarianism, you know, call it the Joe Roganization of our hapless <laughs> kind. So maybe that's where I'm getting this sense of increased uh, perhaps individualism in rugby league players rather than anything structural in rugby league. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that little ramble. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah, I agree. I see that too. But um, I think this is sort of related, but sort of not. It's like the way that in Australia, and from what I understand, it's like similar in the UK too. It's like any discussion of this kind, it, it, it isn't encouraged by the media ecosystem here. Hmm. <clears throat> I'd say like among the ugliest common commentary <laughs> in the country is this kind of like the sports journalist, the Fox Sports Channel 9 journalist, mm. the um, Chuck Chuck Radio. Mm. Stuff like what was happening this week, the like couple of Indigenous players uh, playing for Australia, mm. you know, have chosen not to sing the national anthem because it's mm. the national anthem is pretty much singing against uh, Indigenous struggle mm-hmm. in a number of ways during a week where it was very heightened leading into the referendum. Yeah. You know, a lot of ugly chatter everywhere mm. and everyone jumps on top of Selwyn Cobbo mm. the, the youngest player in the Kangaroos squad yeah. they're not singing the national anthem so even the way that well Josh Adokar just shared a post about the related indigenous struggles between Palestine and Aboriginal Australia mm. discipline brought into a disciplinary meeting about his behaviour mm. so anyone who would be of a far less sensibility um, for indigenous rights, for workers' rights, for collectivisation, I think they're pretty much shut down or not reported on. Mm. And the stories that get pushed instead, uh, they're like, who's going to be the next million dollar player? Mm. Or, you know, like these kind of stories, which are, mm. you know, like on a clickbait level, maybe a little bit sexier, but um, yeah, there's, there's something missing. And I think via the media, via Rupert Murdoch's Fox Sports. It's um, mm. the reporting has taken over the last decades like a quite a rightward lurch. Mm. 
Yes, I think that's very interesting. And I think there is a book somewhere for someone by someone about how uh, Rupert Murdoch has used sport and used us to turn us all bloody rightward. But uh, anyway, 100%. Someone, we're <laughs> yeah. all uh, we're all, all part of that slightly. Unfortunately, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if Anthony Broxton's listening, but <laughs> yeah, someone over to you, Tony. Someone, someone, someone get him to explore, explore this. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a really good point. And yeah, I, I read a couple of those articles about... No, I, I didn't actually read them. I, I, uh, I scoffed at them when I saw... Because you, you've read all those articles before about players yeah. not um, yeah. not singing the national anthem. They had dime a dozen, a dime a million. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you just got to let them go through the keeper. Now, Max, on a, uh, a slightly different note, but it's related. I know you used to play rugby league, and I know you you still like to get out for a game of touch footy when your your body allows. It's it's clear from your writing on the game uh, that the smells, the feels, and the aches of rugby league still vibrate for you. I'd like to hear from you about the joys of playing rugby league. What specifically attracts you to the sport from an on-field perspective? Yeah, cool question. Like, I I never get to indulge, like, fantasies of being a lifelong rugby league player (laughs) very often. I don't know, it's so, like difficult to answer, but it's kind of, it's a feeling that's sort of, of playing league, and I played till I was in my mid-twenties when I broke a kneecap, mm. and then sort of, when I, I, it took me a long time to run again, and then by the time I did, my neck started hurting, mm. and it turned out I had a, <laughs> all these slip discs in my neck, so I've had chronic pain ever since, and sort of not really supposed to do any jolting motions, but get out for a game of touch anyway, and suffer for a couple of days afterwards mm-hmm. but it's worth it and I think a lot of the things that like I really enjoyed that is really hard to replicate in the day to day is that kind of flow of the game so, but like I, by the end of my playing days like I was a hooker and I used to really enjoy that kind of interplay of you know being instructed by a halfback to end up at this part of the field and then you know kind of working with your forward pack and sort of manipulating the rock and sort of having an understanding of like what if I do this 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 we'll get there mm. things like you know setting up sets to just punish the halfback <laughs> <laughs> like I really miss things like that just like bully the halfback to take him out of the next set of six so if you've got like some good field position that kind of stuff and yeah that feeling of having like all these thoughts in your head mm. And the relationships you have with other people on the field and everyone's personalities, it's all happening at the same time live. Mm. It's such a thrill. And you can, like, approximate that with touch footy, like get a couple of good passes away, but mm. it's very much like, you know, close your eyes and imagine it was a game of rugby league. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's just so, not to be, yeah, a bit of a cliche or a sap, but it's like it's really beautiful. Mm. And, yeah, it's probably the closest thing to playing that that I've felt has probably been in writing books like this, where it's kind of, as I'm writing every sentence, like, in my head, like, I'm sitting with the idea of, like, if this character does this, what are the other six characters doing in response? Um, Or where are they? And how do I move the character to a certain part of the book? Um, And if I do this, what what would happen there? Yeah, plotting, to me, feels Mm. like playing dummy half for the Liverpool Catholic Club Raiders <laughs> in 2009. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, I, I can see what you're saying there. Like um, when I play a bit of touch, you know, breaking the line or, you know, running onto a pass and 
and breaking through a set defensive line, it feels like you're breaking through a wall. It does it has that feeling of um, of being catapulted from somewhere, and I, I and that's interesting to sort of make that likeness to to writing a good chapter and sort of getting you know setting it up and then putting them away. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, I've got to get some speed back, make more line breaks. <laughs> yeah, <Instead of> that, <laughs> like. Now, Max, uh, people may not be aware, I think you mentioned earlier, but you do some work for the Western Suburbs Magpies. Uh, I've seen you down at Lidcombe Oval, serving beers, running the till, and basically keeping things flowing down there. Uh, has that more grassroots experience changed your perception of the game, and if so, how? Yeah, in a way, it's sort of it's in the sense that like, when it becomes your 9 to 5, it changes the way you feel about it. You know, like, prior to starting work at West, I would just go to Lidcombe Oval and watch footy. Mm. Now I don't really watch any of, the, any of the game until I do, like, some video highlights at the end kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting because in setting up, you know, putting the pads on the post in the morning before as the players show up and, you know, like, early on in the season, guys like, like Dane, Laurie and Joe often Gowie kind of, like, hang around the pie warmer while we're waiting for the pies to cook before the game, that kind of stuff. That was really, yeah, kind of like a pretty cool experience. And, yeah. you know, serving players power aids after the game, that kind of thing. Yeah. Giving a free can of Coke to, you know, like a South player or something, they'd be really stoked on it. And it's like, you're in the NRL top, it's top 30. You're, <laughs> you're earning enough. I shouldn't be giving you a free can. <laughs> like, good yeah, game, good game, Jerry. Yeah, good game, good game, good game. <laughs> like this other side of it and you can see um, you know as the season progressed you can see say the the Magpies had a pretty poor season but they started well mm. um, and that kind of joviality at the start of the thing you know like Dan Laurie coming to buy a Mars bar sandwiches because the sausages weren't ready <laughs> but <laughs> by the end of the season that was kind of gone and like everyone was sort of head down like looking at their feet yeah. didn't say hello anymore and it's like it's interesting to watch to feel the team on the slide mm. Which is what, what it was like when you used to play and you have a losing season and you know, no one really wanted to talk to each other anymore yeah. and wait, waiting for it to be over. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of been really cool to see that at the grassroots level, even though it's probably a little bit above grassroots, mm. but it's all the same. It's all human connection. And yeah, there's some, still, there's some really beautiful parts of the game at that level that I really enjoy that, aren't, that can't really be replicated at the NRL because of the... Yeah. Um, yeah, we had a couple of funny things. Like we had the sponsor sort of want to do a promotion with a VIP experience at Lincoln Oval <laughs> in a in a corporate box because they hadn't been there yet. Right. And you know, just have like a catered corporate box experience. And sort of sitting on the phone, it's like you, you might have to come to Lincoln Oval so we can do a sausage sandwich or a pie. I <laughs> 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 like probably give them like a few free beers and a, and a bit of a feed, and then maybe. Yeah, I know I can put some plastic tape around a seat in the grandstand, <laughs> and that can be the VIP spot. How do you spell you know? VIP again? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. the, the, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So that's changed my perception of the game, but not mm. for the better or the worse. It's just kind yeah. of um, proven some things, um, disproven some other things, and um, yeah. Yeah, I guess you also related to kind of stuff we were talking about at that level, and I guess you have seen like plenty of Ron Massey Cup. You kind of get uh, an insight into how players are going like I guess more on the breadline. you know they're, they're kind of earning 
not the wages that uh, the big guys are earning. And you might see as as they're standing on a cold day at the uh, the pie warmer, <laughs> you might also <laughs> see that kind of sense of uh, vulnerability or or desperation to to kind of have a good game. I guess. Do you see all that that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the Magpies didn't they didn't field a Rob Massey team this year, but they did last year. Right. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that because I was sort of I was doing the kind of like the stats off the video for oh, nice. you know play the ball speed meters gain that kind of like simple stats yeah um, for the coach and it was really cool to track the progress of some of these players and then you know yeah talk to them by the pie warmer afterwards and yeah like they were yeah their conditions weren't great so it's, it was it was cool to hear the RLPA start talking about some of those lower NRL tier players but mm. yeah I'd like to see something done about like that rung down again and the rung down again because mm. there was yeah there was like a kind of like a player who sort of stopped playing he was playing not as good as he was earlier in the season midway through and no one could really figure out why and it turned out he was playing secretly playing for another club in the oh, in right. another competition that could pay him a little bit better on the on the off day so play two games a weekend wow. just try and get a little bit more cash you know? yeah which that, that was like a real rocker thing it's like <laughs> yeah Oh, like, I wish I'd written that in for him. Like, that's definitely something he would do, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we uh, await the exploits of Rocco in, in, a, in a future life, so uh, you never yeah, know. He might be playing that four or five games a week, I'm, I'm seeing, in, in a future uh, <laughs> installment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Max, uh, we are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, I want... I want to know more about Rocco, but maybe I'll just have to, to read the book again and, and await your next instalment. But, um, yeah, once again, huge congratulations on a fabulous book. Um, I think I might have said it before, but apologies if I'm repeating myself, but there's a, an author I like from the States, Willie Vlaughton, that, that takes you into unfamiliar parts of familiar worlds. And I think you do the same for Sydney, that those that are a part of the subcultures you paint will love it. But those of us who aren't as familiar, I think will find it uh, just as compelling. Uh, but enough drooling from me. Let me just finish off by saying Max Easton, Thanks for your time on the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks, Heaps, Jono. I like, really appreciate you asking me back on. I love the pod. Thanks, I mate. love my f- <laughs> quote, Billy Idol. I love my footy. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Max. Progressive Rugby League. There you have it, Max Easton. The guy knows how to write. He knows how to throw a dummy. He knows how to pull a beer. Check out Paradise Estate, published through Giramondo. All right, another book club episode in the bank, ladies and gents. Check out our other book club apps through the feed if you have the inclination. But for now, it's time to go until we next meet somewhere in a stinky, mouldy, noisy, messy share house in inner western Sydney. Rugby League hobby and see ya. I haven't had to do a nervous poo, which is a, a positive. So, uh, oh, there you go. That's good. <laughs> thank you. Anyway, I won't put that in the uh, in the pod. I put it on the record. <laughs> yeah.